You know, I was I was working in FC Rad, which is a football club in, here in Belgrade, and I I like this. Th there are few there are few situations in training that's you know they stick in your head. Like I can remember them years back. It, it's like revelation. So we had this warm up um, with maybe 20 athletes. So we did the uh, dynamic stuff, like the usual stuff, you know, butt kicks and ski, a skip, big skip, all this stuff. And then we finished with a tag drill. And then we finish with, uh, we call it handball drill. It's like uh, playing maybe 10 v 10 with a ball. You know, you can catch the ball only in the air. And, you know, to score a goal, you need to head it to the goal. And it created a really, really fun atmosphere. And then, you know, the, the head coach stopped this drill and continued doing, uh, you know, dry, I would say dry and boring passing drills. And the assistant coach came to me and said, did you notice something? He's like... No. And he goes like, yeah, but, you know, we, we, we progressed the workout really nicely. We, we enter in this really playful mindset where people actually take risk, learn, try the new things, and then we break it and then we continue drilling. And this is bad. And I was like, stick to my head for like years now. So I think, yeah, we need this play element inside the gym. That was physical preparation coach and sports scientist Miladin Jovanovic speaking on the importance of free flow play-based work in context in the preparation of team sport athletes. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the Freelap Timing System, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The Freelap Timing System has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 106 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today, and we have on the show sports scientist, physical preparation professional, Mladen Jovanovic. He is one of the foremost thinkers in the physical preparation, athletic preparation field today, and particularly in the arena of building the best possible training programs for team sport athletes. If you've been around Mladen's site, you've probably heard uh, the term building robust, a robust athlete, robust training programs. And he brings in the work of many of the world's great philosophers and thinkers in the process. And that's something that I've always really loved, respected. I try to do myself is going outside the field to gain more insight to the field itself. So things like Dan, do you hear that a lot with like Dan John and how he'll relate 
um, back in a few episodes ago with the four F's, food, friendships, family, and finance, and, and how we can learn from each of those and bring it back into the field. And so I always enjoy talking to people who are always bringing things full circle and putting things in my own head or planting those seeds that really help me to think more every time I'm writing a program or carrying out a training session. And so a little bit more about Mladen's background as well. He is the owner of complementarytraining.net and has worked with a variety of elite level sports in countries including Serbia, Sweden, Qatar, Turkey, Australia, and the USA. And Mladen is also finishing up a PhD dissertation on velocity-based training, which he'll be speaking about today. Uh, so I've been looking forward to having him on the show for some time. And I know this is a guy who's uh, in demand. If you listen to podcasts, he's a frequent guest. And in a way, you know, I'm always trying to get different uh, guests. Uh, but I knew I had to get Mladen on the show. Uh, if you read his work on complementary training, just a really intelligent guy, blends a lot of things together, and a guy that I've been meaning to sit down and talk to for some time. And one of the things that really has been drawing my attention lately is his writings on uh, mental heuristics, and which would be a mental shortcut, the way that we think and how sometimes we create shortcuts in our brain that can lead us to write a particular training program. So he writes, writes on that and those ideas. And so that was one of the things that really drew me in for this podcast. Uh, but really, we, um, which I wrote a lot of uh, in, in creating this show, I actually wrote him a lot of like super loaded questions in that arena. We, we actually ended up talking into probably a more honestly practical for you coaches out there who didn't want this to become a giant sports psychology episode. But or, or human psychology episode, I should say. But we really went into some uh, big-time practical thoughts on one of my all-time favorite uh, and very near and close to my heart topics right now, which you heard about the teaser, which is free play versus a canned drilled session. And obviously, things aren't black and white. It's not like you know, for a pro athlete, it's not like go in the gym and just do whatever you want and play and have fun. There are certain things that need to be done in the field. There are certain KPIs, and there are certain things that we need to be pushing towards but at the same time, after being in uh, strength, conditioning, physical prep for some time myself, I realized that sessions where it's just an hour worth of do this, 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 everything's internally cued, there's no free flow, no play, um, things in terms of the stimulation to the athlete and getting them to move the way that their body has intended to through who knows how long of developments and instincts and this primal ability driven by the subconscious mind that's the most amazing supercomputer we have. Um, it's There's a balance. There's there's certain amounts of each, and obviously it's the art of coaching, but Milan's going to give some awesome talk on, um, on, on how free play and free flow fits into that. And the idea, too, of canned and free-flowing versus – free-flowing versus uh, canned and planned, I guess you could say. Uh, it goes into everything, and, and Milan's going to share his insight as well in periodization, planned periodization versus a more free-flowing and robust periodization that caters to the needs of team sport athletes. Uh, also, Milan's going to share a little bit of his thoughts and ideas on velocity-based training, what are some of the different uses, and alluding a little bit to some of the things that he's uh, working on in his PhD without giving it all away. So uh, always great to sit down and talk with minds like Mladen, and I think you guys are going to get a lot out of this episode. Let's get on to the show. Mladen, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Thanks a lot, Joel. Uh, like I, I'm a big fan of your podcast and listened to a few episodes, and it was you know fantastic conversation, so I'm happy to Happy to be part of this uh, fantastic show. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, well, thanks for being here. It's it's uh, same. Uh, likewise, you know, I've been following your stuff for a while, so it's always it's good to you know, 
see your face and actually talk for the first time. It's almost like this podcast has been an excuse on my end to do so, or like at least a motivator. So I'm uh, super excited to, to chat today. Uh, what's um, What's been new recently? I know you moved back to uh, Serbia and, and been traveling a little bit. And what's uh, what's what's good in the life of Milan Janovic? So, uh, yeah, I moved back from Australia 2000. I think it was 2016. Uh, I got divorced, so I moved back. Pretty much, I didn't see my son for a few months, and I started going uh, depressed and a bit crazy. So I couldn't sleep and things like that. Although the the job I was at Port Adelaide, it was fantastic, and they showed fantastic support for my outside issues. Uh, so I moved back to be closer to my son. Uh, and since then, I since then I I, uh, I started doing a PhD. So I just uh, a few days ago I actually defended the PhD uh, project. So it's it's like uh, a formal thing is just announce the thesis, potential thesis, uh, in front of the. Uh, it's it's publicly defended, so you know people can come over and in front of the commission. So I just did that a few days ago. It's going to be on a velocity-based stuff. Um, so yeah, last last two years I've been um, traveling like crazy. Um, Got got myself a motorcycle. It's like a middle age crisis. Uh, hit me hit me really soon. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm learning how to drive and enjoying life and you know freedom pretty much. So yeah, it's pretty much PhD. I try to I finished the book, so I'm awaiting for the final phases of the edit, and I hoping to be available in maybe before August. So let's you know keep the fingers crossed so it's it's a book about the high intensity interval training and it touches up about uh, agile periodization some of my i would say planning stuff inside as well so it's multiple projects and last last year we also uh, we developed the app called the athlete sr which is um a, a web app for it's pretty much for the scheduling the calendar it's really really flexible calendar and survey builder so it's really easy to collect stuff like session RP or wellness questionnaire or anything you want to design besides being really good team calendar. So, so it's, it's a, a lot of stuff. And to be honest, lately I'm contemplating about going back into coaching. Um, uh, but, but the funny thing is like, I will prefer to, to be in, in a, in a, like a management position rather than having like SSC or sports scientist position. So something like, Overseeing the process, getting involved when needed, but you know, try to try to oversee the whole whole stuff. And and these posi- positions are really really rare, and it's really hard to get in a decent position. Although I will I will probably accept the cleaning lady position as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's uh, I would say it's a uh, it's a good life. I see my son, and I'm I'm free. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm been writing and this summer is going to be pretty much a lot of writing the thesis and the papers. So yeah, I, I don't, I, to, honestly, I don't regret moving back from Australia, although, you know, I, I loved it, but you know, it's, it's many more benefits, you know, family comes first. Oh yeah, no, for sure. I, I like what you said about the motorcycle. I feel like you're living my life in reverse. I had motorcycle. A motorcycle. I had a motorcycle. I had a motorcycle, and then got married, and then had kids, and I had to get rid of the motorcycle. It's a little expensive here in California for the for it, anyways. But then you got had a kid, and now you bought a motorcycle. So I'm kind of I'm a little bit jealous of you, to be honest. I'd love to have yeah. back. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a good life. I can't I can't uh, 
I would say uh, can't um, make any negative stuff. Uh, and you know, besides, it's it's a risky activity. But uh, I'm not going crazy. I'm like I'm not that young, and uh, and I have a kid, so I'm and I have a cruiser. So it's like it's a it's a nice ride rather than you know sporting ride and risky stuff. So enjoying enjoying the ride. Yeah, I think if I I would. I've thought if I get a motorcycle again, which I'd love to, it's definitely going to be a cruiser and I should probably pay to get like a factory speed limit installed, like to like 75 or something. Cause otherwise I like with my old bike, it's like, Oh, I have to see how fast this goes. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just in my, in my blood. So I, but oh, uh, what, what did you have before? Did you have a super bike or sport bike or oh, enduro was, or what? Oh, my, I, my boss, old boss made fun of me. It was just like an 83 Honda, um, what was it? Just like a 500 cc, like a little cruiser, but it was uh it wasn't that fast. It was like a good beginner bike. It was it was enough for me not to kill myself. I just rode that like razor's edge for a few years and made it out alive. So, uh, yeah, I was it was perfect. I was uh, I was gonna say too, you uh, Milan, you must be the only PhD. And congrats on that, by the way. Who has oh, think, who, who mentions who mentions yeah in the, but um, who's mentioned like velocity based stuff? <laughs> Very informal. <laughs> Just, you know, here it is, just kind of throwing it out there. But I, actually, I do appreciate that. You know, you got to keep it pragmatic, right? Yeah, I, I mean, um, I I think, I you know, I, I see a lot of scientists fall in love with the stuff. <laughs> and they defend that stuff, you know, whatever it takes. And, you know, they're in that stuff for like ages. And it's their, it's their thing. It's their brainchild. And they're falling in love with that. I'm like, I'm really kind of agnostic about stuff so um, I might come across as a proponent of the velocity based training which you know we, we pretty much uh, you know we wrote the I would say pretty decent review for Australian strength conditioning journal me and uh, Eamon Flanagan and it, it set the, I would say it set the, uh, a good starting point for other papers although it's not the, the best journal to publish I mean it's a good SNC journal, it's not academic journal, but you know, lately I'm, I'm, and being in Qatar and all this, you know, technology and monitoring all this stuff, I just, you know, said, fuck it. You know, it's, I think it's coaching art of coaching and intuition. It's, it's more important. And actually our PhD, uh, our mine and uh, my uh, co-author, uh, Ivan Jukic from Zagreb, it's, we, we try to like, we, we did our best to, uh, validate the some of the um, stuff uh, the metrics or approaches using velocity based training we we try to validate it and you know we saw it's not that it's not that clear it's not that straightforward there are still errors it's like trying to predict how many reps in reserve you have from velocity uh, it's tricky it's not that easy and I think you know uh, don't fall for that stuff too early uh, it's too early and I think we still need to rely on intuition and, you know, uh, art of coaching pretty much. So, and yeah, I'm, I'm trying not to fall in love again. I like, I, I might shift stuff. I'm, I'm trying to be really pragmatic rather than, you know, like I'm a VBT guy. It's like in five years, it's probably not going to be as much as big as, as it is now. So then you just you try to grab it, like try to hold it. And I don't think that's the that's the right way and besides that's i would say that's more scientific because all the all the stuff we do I, I and all the stuff i write and all the stuff i i would say 
blog about I try to I try to break it myself. So rather than try to make try to make try to find sorry support for a certain hypothesis, I, I use this falsification as proposed by Popper. I try to break it. Like and it, I try to break all these theories from you know multiple attacks. Uh, and if 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 it holds those attacks, then it's probably viable. So it's probably closer to the truth. And most of these really really complex stuff. It's it's you know once you start in attacking it and you know dissolving it, then you end up with a really simple uh, stuff. For for example, the periodization, all these fancy periodization schemes, it might be only uh, variation. So rather than anything, you know, fancy specific sequence you need to follow. So it might be only, okay, you need to focus on one thing for some time, then you switch it, that's it. So it's like a, a minimal um, minimal complexity. So it's like a, a Occam razor. So what's the least complex explanation of what's happening? And I think that's the most robust theory. If, you know, if you try to attack it from different, you know, you're going to strip all this complexity and you're going to, you're gonna end up with something that's really, really simple. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I like the idea. And as long as I've been a coach too, it's just like trying to. I think we all start there, right? Like the you mentioned periodization, like the big fancy scheme and the year plan and and what, or even like a three month plan or whatever. And you know, I think there is that fancy scheme that we roll out. Uh, at the end of the day, I, I know you're a big uh, Dan John guy. You mentioned like the park bench workouts and the bus bus bench workouts and those types of things and one of the dan john things that's always stuck with me like every i literally think about it probably every year at some point is the idea of like when you set a personal best i know dan's a, a track guy or i'm sure you know many ways to validate what a personal best is but like it probably wasn't at the tail end of like this year perfect big long year plan it would just kind of happen when you weren't even as an athlete you weren't even really thinking about what you were doing it just all kind of happened and came together and I always go back to that, you know, like and in, in, in myself, even I work with some coaches who really don't have that plan, but yet they, you know, they get really good results. And so I, I just think that's a, the whole periodization thing is always an interesting, it's an interesting question. It's cool to see a lot of people talking about it to you and John Kiley and, and people kind of hitting it from uh, the philosophical angle too, because I think you have to inject philosophy into that to really steer the ship in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. And uh, actually, I mentioned that story by Dungeon multiple times. But I, I came to similar conclusion with working with team sports. So most of the head head coaches, at least in Serbia, they don't have a faculty background. Or I mean, they might have a faculty background, some other faculty, but not many doing uh, kinesiology or faculty of sports. And Coming as I educated SNC, and I had this, you know, nice laid out plan for like a whole year, and these guys, they are like free flowing every day. It's like, oh, maybe we should do this, maybe we should try that. And I remember back in the day when I started, 2007. Um, I said back in the day is like I've been coaching for 40 years, like, <laughs> uh, which is not the case. Uh, so when I started, I I look at these coaches and I said, you know, these fucking morons, that like they don't have any plan. They're like. What the hell are they doing? But now I'm like, okay, they, they, I think they were more agile than, than us. So just because you have a plan doesn't mean you are, you know, foolproof or you are good coach. And I, but on the other side, if you are like, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not gonna break balls of CrossFit, but if you're just doing random stuff, 
then you know it's it's the on the other side of the extreme so something that's i would say you appreciate the randomness you appreciate the you know day-to-day changes but you also have a big picture in mind like these are the objectives you want to achieve but then you're like flexible with within those you know bucket that constraint so rather than then you know trying to squeeze everything in a in a shallow space like these are the progressions we're gonna do for like a year and things like that so yeah it's it's the same thing and now when i'm when i'm older i started you know i started i wanted to do more sports like i wanted to we, we play soccer sometimes it's a you know uh indoor soccer like futsal and i just really enjoy it. like you you just go and play it's like when you are younger you are under pressure to succeed it's like you need to succeed and you have a pressure by the coaches and all this stuff now you just enjoy sports and as you mentioned the the dungeon story as well like i think he hit the personal best in a disco throw once he retired because he just enjoyed the process there's no pressure to achieve and then you just relax and go with the flow and then you bam hit the personal best so i think there's a a lot to it you know it's just we just create this artificial pressure too much so maybe something to talk about in this episode or any other but uh yeah really interesting topic you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster yeah, that's actually that's something that I'll I'll just switch my questions around a little bit, and I, I'm actually happy to do so. That you you kind of touched on that point is like the bus bench and the park bench. I know you've talked about it in other podcasts, and but I've thought about that. Like I feel like the longer I've been a coach, the more the greater and greater and greater percentage of my workouts has become um, more the park bench. A, a good friend of mine, Paul Cater, who coaches down in uh, about two hours down south of me, Monterey Salinas, and does work with the Orioles. Like this kind of in full circle, I did a workout with him and it's just like the whole first of the hour, the whole first 45, 50 minutes was honestly just messing around, like him coming up with this stuff on the spot, like a, basically a 50 minute warm up that's like dynamic and all different and, you know, doing stuff to music or different sprint drills or just chucking a basketball at each other as fast as you can or whatever. At the end of that, I felt awesome. And then the last 15 minutes is just, I guess, the the bus bench, you know, the main set of the day and then that's it. And it really yeah. has changed just going through that and seeing how I felt and just kind of thinking about a lot of things. I'm like, this is a lot closer to the training that I did in many cases in ways than when I was setting my bests than when I try to really put everything in all these boxes. And a lot of those boxes are too much max strength work anyways. <laughs> and uh, it's changed. It's been a game changer. So I, I'd love it if you expand a little bit on that and and your your own experiences. Yeah, I think uh, you, you touch on a, on a good stuff. Uh, so I... I I think we are missing this play element in 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 training, uh, and I can make a few examples. So, and also the the the, the thing you mentioned is it doesn't need to be black or white. So you can have a, a a certain part of the workout that's being strict. You know, maybe exercise or two. This is, I would say, bus bench. This is this is it. This is uh, you know these are the amount of sets you're doing. This is the exercise you're doing. But then on the second part of the workout, it could be more playful. So it could be say, okay, you choose, you know. Maybe a single leg exercise. Maybe choose the upper body pulling exercise, yeah, and you know just try to you know go from five reps to 15 reps per set, something like that. Or just say uh, maybe accumulate 30 to 50 or even 100 reps total, and then you're just you know playing. Maybe today I just you know I saw this new exercise on a on a Instagram. I want to try it. So why not? Uh, as long as you are you know doing the big rocks, you know in quotation mark first. Or they are being done in training, so then you can have this, you know, wiggle room to play. Uh, 
um, yeah, other thing is like this display stuff. Uh, and one, you know, I was I was working in FC Rod, which is a football club in, here in Belgrade, and I I like this. Th- there are few there are few situations in training that's you know they stick in your head. Like I can remember them years back. It, it's like revelation. So we had this warm up um, with maybe twenty athletes. So we did the uh, dynamic stuff, like the usual stuff, you know, butt kicks and ski, a skip, big skip, all this stuff. And then we finish with a tag drill. And then we finish with a, we call it handball drill. It's like uh, playing maybe 10 v 10 with a ball. You know, you can catch the ball only in the air and, you know, to score a goal, you need to head it to the goal. And it created a really, really fun atmosphere. And then, you know, the, the head coach, stop this drill and continue doing, uh, you know, dry, I would say dry and boring passing drills. And the assistant coach came to me and said, did you notice something? He's like, no. And he goes like, yeah, but, you know, we we, we progressed the workout really nicely. We, we enter in this really playful mindset where people actually take risk, learn, try the new things, and then we break it and then we continue drilling. And this is bad. And I was like, stick to my head for like years now. So I think, yeah, we need this play element inside the gym. But the thing is, like, um, strength training is not the stuff where you, you know, fuck around too much, especially if, you, if you're in team sports. And I, and I think that's the reason why team sport dislike, at least in soccer in Europe, they dislike lifting because it's dry and boring. It's like, you know, when you're on a pitch, you you know, you play around with your teammates, you try tricks, you, you know, try to make fool of someone, something <laughs> like that. But then you go in the gym and it's like dry and boring. And and you probably notice the European style lifting uh, in soccer when they, you know, do a bosu stuff. And they do it, you know, mostly because it, it's more fun and it's more culture. But if you try to make them squat, it's like, it's boring. It's like... You need to kind of sneak in. You need to be a snake to sneak in the hard work somehow without making a clash with the athletes. So you can be the best SNC in the world. You come in a soccer. It's a different culture. You need to understand that culture and you need to slowly sneak in the hard, heavy stuff. And I know a few SNCs from USA came, coming to Europe or coming to Asia and they, they, they come with the American mindset. And it didn't work. So they had a lot of clash with the athletes. And, you know, for example, you know, on Thursday we do deadlifts because it's written in a book. And it doesn't work. It's So I, I think, again, I come back to this art of coaching. Is We need to, we need to bring this playfulness inside the uh, lifting. So it doesn't need to be, you know, fucking around on a boss ball. But it, it should have certain elements of, uh, you know, playful activity once you hit the you know big rocks oh yeah I, I completely agree i and i'm glad you mentioned that too because i think there could be the you you could roll with it to that point like you said the the euro like uh, soccer football players who everything want they wanted everything to be played you know and there's there does need to be those those big rocks in the program and i i hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it, the idea of you also being able to do that first, like I mentioned, my friend Paul does the long warm up and then hits some big rocks, or doing the big rocks first and then going into some play. And like you mentioned, and that that example of just altering the skill and the athletes are having fun walking out of the weight room. I just think it's so underrated. Like I think about 
dopamine and and our neurochemistry and how that how our body processes a workout in terms of stress and recovery and I can't really think of anything better sometimes than walking out of the weight room like with a smile on your face and that was awesome and I had this learning experience on top of lifting heavy weights and and being able to mix those together in a way that that it's about the process and and I think about flow too and and how do we create flow throughout the whole workout not just um I don't know during the Olympic lifts if you like Olympic lifting or or whatever I I will but those are just awesome things to think about and consider. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I, as, I, as I said earlier, it's it's tricky to do it in in um, strength training, um, but I, I don't think it's impossible to do it. I think there's a there are you know different strategies you, you might use. You might, as mentioned before, you might have a a boring part, maybe two times twenty minutes, uh, where you do the stuff. Uh, that's you know boring and important and then you you know you do this uh, interesting stuff but then you can also have like a super set maybe one you know you do a you know lower body heavy lift and then you do some you know upper body uh, funny I would say funny thing but something that's new or you try to vary it across the season and that's another thing it's boredom so you probably know yourself as an athlete. You know you can't stay on the same program forever. It's like it's boring. It probably it's still probably working, but it just gets boring. You're you're not looking forward to it, and it it might affect the you know whatever. It might affect the hormones or uh, CNS neurochemistry or whatever. But you know you just it's boring. So maybe we should have those big rocks, and once you finish them, then you do you know the fun stuff. It's like it's like once I got a kid, I, I realized all these tricks work on them. It's like, okay, do your stuff first, and then you're going to play. It's like, no, I don't want to do it. It's like, okay, if you do your stuff now, you're going to do a double play later. So what what do you prefer? It's like, okay, I'll, I'll you know, I'm, I'm going to clean my room now, and then I'm going to play iPad for like 10 minutes or 20 minutes rather than 10. So it's something like that. So I think it works with with everyone. Like, you know, do your homework first, and then I'm gonna go around, you know, with my friends. So, it's same thing in a, in a strength training. So it's not really that different. I love that. I'm laughing because I have a two-year-old. I'm just thinking about her and dinner time. Um, but uh, it actually makes so my my friend Paul too with the big long warm-up before. That's here. I feel like here in America, where everyone just wants to get to the heavy lifting, right? And and we don't play enough, and everything's coached versus uh in europe maybe where like they would rather play than do the heavy lifting and selecting the first thing in the workout based off the cultural context too uh that i mean that that seems like an interesting concept it certainly makes sense to me yeah um, i mean it, it can be it can be taken to the negative extreme uh, you know everybody's not lifting or just you know fucking around in the gym and I think that's the extreme we have nowadays uh, in Europe, in most of the clubs. But then again, um, most of these guys are playing a lot of games and um, they are already developed athletes. So mm -hmm. not sure how many performance improvement with these guys you can get in the uh, gym. And I, I know this might get some people furious, but I, I think the point of the gym work with these guys is mostly making them robust rather than, you know, making them stronger or jump higher. 
you know, it's just making sure that, you know, you create robust athlete that can withstand the playing stress you get from high level competition. So it's frequent, it's long. And what, what's the best thing you can do is to make sure they are available for the coach to do the skill, skill sessions and, and games. So, you know, make them strong enough. So make them strong enough to, to kind of support and have this. That's why I like Dan John armor building. So you're building an armor rather than making them faster in the gym or, or something like that. So I, I think that's a, another uh, viewpoint to, to look at the process. Oh, oh, right on. I That's really come full circle for me in, like, in working with a sport like tennis, which regardless if it's America or Europe or anywhere, I think the generality is almost always the same as the tennis players don't really like lifting heavy that much. And I've kind of gotten to the point where I'm like, yeah, that's like my job is to make you injury injury proof and robust way more than I care about how fast you run a 505 or a 10 yard dash. Over. I mean, I want you to do that better, but I'd my priority with that group much, much, much more than uh, uh, getting. I mean, I think it validates us sometimes, especially I was a track guy. So I want to see you jump higher. Cool. But I've realized like, look, it doesn't really matter unless you're on the court. So I've really I mean, we still lift, but a lot of our time is more spent actually doing like the Jay Schrader extreme isometrics. And those guys get fired up about that stuff too. They do it in a group. They get way more out of it and they'll work harder. And I'm like, cool, yeah. like, let's do this. Like, this, this is great. Yeah, I think with, with all these uh, examples, there are positive sides and negative sides. One of the negative sides of taking this stance of protecting from the downside is alibi coaching. So you're just doing something that they can do and whatever, but they're not improving and, but you're coaching and you can always call it I'm, I'm armor building and things like that. So it's, I think it's a fine balance between, um, um, I would say adapting to, you know, their needs and also trying to push them forward. And it's, it, that's why I say it's, it's an art of coaching that's more important than, than any numbers or, or anything. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I do think that uh, it's definitely an art that you kind of each group's a little different, and uh, each each population. I I was going back to I wanted to circle back just a little bit to mention too on like the, I guess we talk about like like playing around. I, I and I guess that's kind of a I don't know if that's the right like word for it in many contexts. Like you mentioned the idea of like a menu system or just saying. I uh, want you get X number of reps in, which is it's structured, but it's not like it's not just necessarily like just play, do whatever you want. Like I was thinking about, I had a conversation with uh, Jay DeMeo, um over at Richmond uh, a couple of years ago. His team was having the best season they'd ever had, and we were just talking about in-season training a little bit. And I don't want to misquote him, but I think it was something like, "We aren't really doing much of anything in season right now. It's just the guys come in, and you have to do 75 total reps of TRX or push-ups and pull-ups or something like that." and feel good and then leave and i was like cool like that's you know it's just like there's a little bit of a menu to it and so i and that that always stood out to me in terms of yeah it's like you're you don't just go in here and do whatever but there is a structure to it but there's also a little bit of personal autonomy i I think also depends who you're working with and um working in soccer if you give them too much wiggle room they're gonna use it in, in a negative way so they're gonna not do stuff um so you need to find a, a, a fine balance between giving them freedom and asking for, a, um, I would say, strict uh, training. So it's, again, it's art of coaching in finding what's the best uh, best way. So if, if you have a responsible athletes, um, and then you can say, you know, do the, 
uh, I don't know, whatever, lifting, you know, accumulate 50 reps in a upper body rows, they're going to use, they're going to use some actual weights. <laughs> that makes sense. They're going to try to push themselves a little bit. But if you're working with uh, athletes who don't give a damn, they, they might, you know, they might use like a pink dumbbells or whatever, just <laughs> get, the, get the reps in. So again, it's, it's tricky. It's, it, there's no, there's no recipe that's worked for everyone and you, you, you need to find it that, that suits your own team. Yeah. No, right on. I, I, I like the examples too, from, uh, I think my populations, not all of them are generally, and maybe just in America too, are very motivated to lift weights and, and max weights, which is awesome. It makes my job easier, but you don't think about well, what about the, and you hear about it in pro sports a lot too. I hear it from like NBA strength coaches who, where they have the precedent of not really wanting to lift or do that type of thing as often. And so it's good to hear those examples on my end to think about uh, just the different options and and coaching mindsets that might come with that. I was gonna. I wanted to uh, actually go back. Um, you were talking a little bit about velocity based training and your your PhD work, and I'd love if you could expand a little bit on that and some of the things you're you're finding and some practical guidelines for coaches in terms of bar speed monitoring. So, <clears throat> without without uh, uncovering the the secrets oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the details of my findings uh so for the listeners the velocity based training is is the approach of using velocity to prescribe training so um and it, it it's based on the assumption and and actually prerequisite that you lift during the concentric range as fast as possible so for example if you um uh, say if you if you start with the 20% of 1RM and then proceed to 100% uh, and then measure velocity of the first rep, you're gonna get this nice um, and pretty pretty reliable uh, force. I would say force uh, load velocity profile. So it's it's really linear. It's you know the heavier the weight, the slower you're gonna lift it, and so forth. And the 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 funny thing, or I would say the hypo, hypo, one of the hypotheses is that if your 1RM improves. So, for example, you go from 100 kilos bench press, uh, for example, that might be lifted at 0.16 meters per second. Um, and, for example, your 80% might be lifted at, I'm just going to bomb the numbers, maybe like 0.4 meters per second. Um, and then you increase that 1RM to 120 kilos. The velocity at 120 kilos is going to be, you know, within margin of error of that 0.18 or 16, whatever I've said, meters per second. And same thing for 80%. So it's going to still be around 0.4 meters per second, which, and this makes it quite useful because you can use velocity to prescribe rather than using a pre-cycle 1RM um, to prescribe training. Uh, so, and also it takes into, it takes into account day-to-day -day variation. So if you're feeling, you know, down on a certain day, uh, Velocity 80% is gonna be, um, it's gonna be same. I, I would say same, but I would say less variable than the weight. So you know, maybe 80% on a given day might be 80 kilos, or one day might be 85 kilos. But if you take velocity, then you you take that into account. So one of the practical applications uh, of that is to to prescribe training, saying, okay, try to find the load where your initial rep is say 0 0.35 meters per second to 0.4. So once you do that, and you might give a, you might give a, a rough range of what that might be actually. So um, 
So that that's one of the I would say the main hypothesis. Uh, it's that the uh, re- reliability of the load velocity profile. The next one, and again, it differs on the application. There, there there's no one application. There are multiple applications of velocity-based training. So the next application is um, prescribing number of reps. And the hypothesis, one of the hypotheses is that um, regardless of the load used, in this case could be 90% of 1RM, could be 80, 70, the reps in reserve are associated with a certain velocity. So the closer you are to a, fa- to a fa- failure, you, you're going to reach that velocity at 1RM. So, for example, let's, let's say you lift five reps at 85%. So the initial rep might be 0.35 and then, you know, slower and slower until you hit pretty much the velocity really close to uh, velocity at 1RM. Uh, and as I mentioned before, it, it's like 0.16 to 0.18, whatever. And the hypothesis is that you can predict reps in reserve from velocity. Again, assuming that every rep is lifted as fast as possible. So these are two major assumptions of velocity-based training. And if these are true for a given individual or a given exercise, this means that you can use velocity start. So you can say, okay, um, your initial rep should be, you know, 0.35 reps uh, meters per second. And then you need to stop the set at, say, 0.2 meters per second, which is two reps in reserve. So that's, that's the, I would say, two major hypotheses uh, that velocity-based training is relying on. And we actually tested that with uh, hex bar deadlift. And I'm not going to say the, the results, but uh, uh, they're not that great. <laughs> and uh, one of one of my conclusions is that we still need to rely on coaching intuition and and the, the traditional stuff. We cannot just replace stuff with a new velocity-based training. And the other approach that, that's mostly employed by Spanish researchers is to use a, a velocity threshold. And that, that means that you do reps until you say your velocity of the initial rep drops be, below, say, 10% or 20% or 30% or 40%. But I'm not a big fan of that approach. I, I think it, it's pretty good also, but it's not greatest uh, because it, 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 uh, using percentages is biased on the initial rep. So the faster the initial rep, the bigger the buffer. So the, the slower the initial rep, the uh, the velocity drop will be short, uh, smaller, and again, it might depend again on an initial on an initial rep velocity or the exercise and so forth. So that's one of the approaches, but um, I'm not the biggest fan. I prefer the velocity start and the velocity stop that's calculated based on the individual profile. So one of my, I would say, one of the two major hypotheses we tested with the design we made for my PhD is to try to test these, these two hypotheses are good enough in to be used in in this way to by good enough I refer to predictive validity. Are they good at predicting percent of one RM and reps in reserve? And uh, they are not perfect. Like I, I, you know again I, I don't wanna go into details. Oh, yeah. I wanna I wanna publish papers, right? Uh, so it's it's not that easy. I mean we, we made few uh, we made few, I would say errors, but we didn't control for, say, um, tempo. So one of our, um, d- during reps to failure lifting, 
uh, we allowed for the individual uh, preference. So if you know some some athletes lift it and hold the weight at the top, and then lower it slowly and then explode it again, where some athletes just lift it up, bam bam, and then lower it down immediately. So we didn't control for that. So it could be could be that thing as well, but you know it's it's an individual style of lifting. So we we had this idea of the ecological validity. So you know this is what happens in coaching. And it doesn't work in some, something that's happening in the coaching without really controlling for everything, then, you know, it's not really practically useful. Um, so, you know, we, we are trying to make stuff that's applicable in training rather than, you know, laboratory using a Smith machine or whatever, you know, making prescribed tempo of lifting and so forth. So we, we allow for a self-selection of the... Uh, of the eccentric phase and the, and the, and the, um, and the pause at the top and things like that. So again, it's, it's not perfect, but it, it has this ecological validity that we, uh, we were looking to maintain. So it, the, the research has application to a real life practice. Oh, right on. No, I, it totally makes sense to me. I mean, I, I think I maybe have thought about that myself a little bit. Like, yeah, if you just blasted the first rep, versus if you kind of sandbag the first rep and some people, you know, are better on their second or third. And I, one of the things I, I don't want to keep digging into your, uh, <laughs> what you're doing with your PhD, I may ask a couple more general questions too. It, it, it all is, it's really fascinating in terms of the yeah, reliability and especially if we're going to use this and really try to be precise with it. But um, the studies were talking about the 20% velocity decrement and hypertrophy and fast twitch hypertrophy and the 40%. What are your thoughts on, on that and how we should go about with with uh, the decrements and those types of things in, in general outside of the validity question i think that the main benefit of velocity-based training is that uh, live feedback you know it's just and everybody once you see the numbers you're trying to live as fast as possible and i think that's a main benefit of monitoring velocity because you're lifting as fast as possible and it's been shown that uh if you you know if your intent is maximal then you're going to get uh higher levels of strength, you know, explosive strength or whatever. Uh, when it comes to those percentages, it's like, I would say it's like a quality control. So, like, who said you cannot do less reps with, a, you know, percent-based training? Well, you know, you don't need to go to failure. So rather than doing eight reps at 85%, you might do four reps. So do you need a, you know, velocity-based training device to do that? Probably not. It's like coaching intuition. It's like do four reps. Um, so same thing with these, you know, percent drop. So if, if you do 20% drop, that means you're going to stop the set sooner than with 40% drop. So, you know, all things equal, you're going to do more reps with, uh, 40%, uh, allowing for 40% velocity drop. And the thing is like, then you're going to accumulate more slower in quotation mark reps and you're going to accumulate more volume. And, you know, it, research showed that, you know, the volume is probably one of the factors involved in hypertrophy response. And, but there are also some studies in, in that 20 versus 40 showing that, you know, 20 uh, people lifting for 20 improved the strength quite similarly as 40, uh, actually even better, probably because they accumulate less volume, so they are more fresher. But when it comes to hypertrophy, they had s smaller effects in hypertrophy compared to 40%. So again, it's it's you know depends what you want, um, and as I said, having velocity velocity based LPT a load, uh, linear tr position transducer, um, it's the device that measure velocity of the barbell, 
it's a good thing because you can you know get the live feedback then you might get the higher intent of the athletes to lift as fast as possible but again you know you don't need you don't need lpt to stop a given set before a failure you just need to watch it and say like once it get heavy stop it so it's not a, a big 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 deal it's just more a fancy way to do it yeah i it makes me think just about the you know what's the limit for technology use in the weight room as it is and how much is even good to preserve coaching intuition i mean like that the study with the 20 the 40 you'd imagine if one group just had hey you have four sets of five move as fast as you can the other group had four sets of 12 and you had a coach encouraging them the whole time it would probably be similar results like it would be a similar outcome versus actually going through and looking at it and just kind of knowing and you know maybe stopping a rep if you had to or something like that with the on the end of the coach and i i totally agree with the motivational factor i mean i've seen athletes who you if they're doing olympic lift and you put a tendo on the bar all of a sudden you you just know that bar is moving about at least like probably 0.2 or 0.3 meters per second faster than it was before you put it on there just because they're motivated now they they actually it they went through something routine and now there's an outcome uh, with it yeah one one thing with all this velocity based training um is that if you're in the research they're comparing the velocity based approach and as opposed to uh, i would say let's call it traditional percent based approach um is you know it, it's similar to a control group versus experimental you, you want to make it blind so just because you attach the device for a given group and they're doing something fancy, you might get a bigger motivation. So, and then you might get a better training effects. But if you, if you do similar with a experimental group, in this case, that could be percent-based approach, then you might get similar effects. So, you know, you might also demand, uh, you know, you give a live feedback, um, and then you might give, um, yeah, you, you attach device, you, you ask for a highest, um, the, the highest level of the intent to lift as fast as possible where somewhere they don't even do that. So they just, you know, compare percent based approach to velocity based training and the athletes know, which is probably more important. So because they have a device, they have a screen, you know, everybody's yelling and, uh, researchers want to show that this approach is better and it's all this biases going to the athletes as well you know and we need as a researchers we need to control for that and it's it's tricky i'm not saying this is like it's easy to be a armchair scientist you know it's it's really easy to pinpoint to flaws in the study and it's really hard to control for everything but i i think at least when it comes to this it's it's really important um because then you might say okay you know, per, uh, percent-based approach is, is worse than velocity-based approach, but then, you, you you know, in velocity-based group, you have a live feedback, you have coaches yelling, you want them to live faster and, and so forth. So it's not really, I would say, fair comparison. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Sure, yeah, and how much of that with the velocity tag on the bar is the outcome of the set uh, I guess muscular versus higher driven, you know, from the from the brain and how motivated you were to to do each rep versus um, yeah, if, or if research was done and the athlete had no idea that there was a velocity on the bar, just lift and we'll figure it out. Uh, how does that how does that all change it? It's interesting things to think about. Uh, I wanted to so Milan, I want to actually go back to uh, I want to make sure we get to this before our, our time's up today. I definitely wanted to ask you this. I'd 
I'd read a couple of articles you've written on this. I think it goes back to the periodization element too. And um, so just talking about like delayed transformation and phase potentiation. And so uh, you definitely get people like uh, like Mike Stone and, and the strength researchers are talking about delayed transformation, delayed training or delayed training effects. And how do we how do we manage that? How, what's your thoughts on how we navigate that in terms of moving from one section of training to the next uh, and trying to, uh, it, how much setting up should we be relying on in terms of one training phase onto the next? So I think the basis of the periodization in general and, and phase, or I would say phase potentiation, but the delayed transformation in particular is the assumptions of uh, pre predictable effects. Uh, but l let's let's take the uh, really, really common example is that, you know, how many athletes on the major competition reach seasonal best or personal best? I think there's a study, but, you know, if you find it, let me know because I, I saw it somewhere. I cannot find it. And I, I reference this example a lot of times. So if things are really predictable, then you will assume that high level uh, sorry, high percent of athletes reach personal best on the major competition, but that's not the case. I think it's around 50%, even less, which means that, you know, if you can hit personal best or season best on Olympic Games, that means there's something flawed in, you know, assumptions of predictability of training effects. So, and that's individual sports. You have all this laid out perfectly planned and then you, you know, you don't hit the you don't hit the season best, not not the personal best. So, all this stuff is based on the assumption of predictability, and I, I think that's that's a really optimistic uh, assumption. So, and then you also have this, I would say, real life risk uh, of losing your job. So, working in soccer, if you say, okay, we're gonna spend, um, first of all, you have around five to eight weeks to prepare the athletes. Um, and then the, you have a, a friendly matches starting from uh, week two, pretty much. It's not 90, 90 minutes. It's like two, you know, 45 minutes, maybe 60 minutes and you progress. Uh, so then you assume, okay, you, you make this assumption and say, okay, uh, for the four, four, four weeks, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to kill them in the gym. So, uh, you know, I'm going to in, increase and overload the strength training. And then once the season starts, they're going to, uh, super compensate and they're going to be stronger and they're going to be faster but they keep losing the friendly games and then someone from the board calls you and said you know what the fuck is happening with the team you know they are slow they have heavy legs they are complaining we are losing friendly games the confidence is going down and you, you set things for failure pretty much and it, it happened to me like it happened to to me i don't know how many times because you assume things will work as you plan and sometimes they don't so just from a risk perspective, I don't think it's the viable strategy um, to over, um, I would say, um, overtrain somewhere or, or to, to expect the delayed uh, supercompensation, delayed transformation. I think it's like a fancy word, but I, I don't even know if, if there's any like high level research on that stuff. So, you know, I, and I've been struggling with the concept for like ages. And um, nowadays I'm more like, you know, what's the, what's the least amount of training that, you know, push the things forward? It, it's, it's, that, it's that simple. Like, what are the, the basic things we need to do all the time? You know, just do them. And then it's similar to the bus bench versus the park bench stuff we spoke about. 
like with the, with the bus bench approach you will you will uh, you will have a timetable so you you're gonna like for four weeks we're gonna overreach and then for the next four weeks we're gonna super compensate and you know that doesn't work what happens after those eight weeks like what how how are you gonna progress the training how are you gonna work after that you know the season is like four months long you know it's not one month long so and you don't have a one peak but then the the I would say the counter argument will be dealing with individual sports. You know, you have a longer preparatory period, and you have few competitions that are you know few major competitions in the year. But you probably know and notice yourself. Like even if you have a if you work with a single individual for like years, you probably know how he ticks ticks like like a clock. But you still cannot assume that the same training gonna have the same effects because maybe. Last season, he had all this nice stuff happening to him, you know, maybe job promotion or results and things like that. But this year, you're doing the same training, but he got divorced, he, uh, his kid is sick, his parents died, or, you know, whatever. And then the training will be completely different. And, you know, you're not going to expect the same, uh, in, sorry, you can't expect the same training effects as you had before. And also, the, the thing is, the thing we need to think about is that uh, every time you push a certain athlete, especially on the highest level of competition, they are going into the unknown. It sounds funny, but they are going into the unknown level of performance individually and also on, on the level of the population. You, we don't know what's happening there. It's like, you know, you can't rely on the studies on, you know, on student population that bench press 70 kilos. It's like, it's ridiculous. It's it's the new unknown territory of the human performance, and you know all this uh, delayed transformation stuff. It's based on the idea of the uh, prediction. So I think I think it's it 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 sounds really good in in theory, but in practice, uh, you know, uh, I think Jan Lemur, um, the, the the researcher from France, the you probably know him as a guy with. Uh, the nice infographics. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he did a really interesting study where they compared two groups. One group did a normal training, whatever that is, and one group did a overreaching training. And I think they reach like long term, they reach the same training uh, effect, training potential, or training results, whatever. So, I think it sounds really nice in the books and the theory, and you laid out nice plans. But at the end of the day, is like doing the, the important things all the time uh, and creating overload and doing some variety. And, you know, just, you know, I, I tend to say, like, do the best you can. And they do some, uh, do a few um, pranks and hope for the best. <laughs> so that's pretty much it. I could see the the team sport versus the individual sport too. I mean, my me as a coach, I've spent more time in the individual, and I think I've almost like grown to just be like accept a more experimental nature in an individual because you're always just like you're always trying something in the off season that you hope clicks and you learn more about the athlete. And if you make little errors, it's not as costly. It's kind of like what you said in a team sport. If you you try something with um, based on predictability, like this is going to pay off, and it doesn't, and then the the repercussions are much greater. And I uh, like I know coaches like I uh, talking like Derek Evely about Bonderchuk and just how experimental that guy was to always be trying to find this thing that's going to get me w when I do have to be really good versus a team sport. It's definitely an interesting uh, the way those coaches think. It'd be interesting to kind of 
you get those coaches together, great uh, physical prep coaches, great uh, individual sport coaches, and just kind of see how they're thinking in the off season and what are they trying to get in each uh, phase, I guess, if you will, if you want to call it that, uh, compared to each other. Yeah, I, I learned a lot from uh, Derek Evely, and, and we spoke about this stuff a few times and exchanged a few emails. So one of the stuff, and it, this is quite interesting, that, that he uh, uh, told me about is that some – with some athletes, he measure like the discus throw or the the shot put throw, uh, and then you then what they see what they what they saw is that uh, it takes certain amount of training sessions to hit the peak, or, or I would say peak, but to hit the plateau. Mm-hmm. So and then he showed that uh, it might be like 20, 50 sessions, um, and it's quite stable. So if you squeeze those sessions in shorter time span, they're still gonna they're gonna hit that this peak again. If Derek is listening to this, you know he's probably gonna correct me or something if I say something <laughs> stupid. But uh, if you squeeze those in a shorter time frame, um, you're gonna still hit those plateau in performance, or if you extend it. Uh, and and but that's again that's individual sport. And what they what they what they do is um, uh, is is to test this. You need to keep things stable. So you, you don't rotate the exercises, you don't, you know, you don't change stuff. So they have really basic planning, like you probably are aware of it. So they have this A and B, maybe C session, and they are quite the same. And they do all the things, all the, all, all, like uh, overweight implement, underweight implement, maybe 10, 10 throws, 10 throws, and then do some uh, uh, specialized developmental exercises and then general exercises, which are the same and quite really light. Uh, so, you know, repeat that sequence, then you, then you can, because the sequence is always the same, there's not much changing, then you can see, you know, how much it takes for the, again, shot put or a discus throw distance to reach certain plateau. So once you know this for an individual, then you can expect that on a, on a competitions, right? So then you can say, okay, we have two months, we need to, we need to put inside like 30 sessions to hit the, you know, the best possible throw on a given competition day and i think that works for uh, you know individual sports as a shot put or or something like that uh, but with the team sports you don't want to hit the ceiling so i would rather slowly cook the athlete and you know progress by making things more random if that makes sense so it's i would, I would say it's a it's a it's a it's a problem of uh, of peaking or or, or multiple performance. So, you know, with the discus throw, what's the performance? It's a, you know, distance. And in the soccer, you know, it's not the distance, it's not the distance covered, it's really more complex. So having a really strict program, it doesn't work. So you, I, I would rather rotate things more frequently so they don't reach the ceiling, whatever that is. Hopefully that this makes some sense. Oh, no, for sure. And I, maybe we can unpack that a little bit too. First off, uh, you mentioned team sport athletes not wanting them to hit the ceiling, basically not not peaking them. Um, yep. And what what are the main reasons that you're not trying to find peaks with those guys? I'm sure I think a lot of people listening probably would be familiar, but just to kind of extrapolate that out. So um, m- most of the stuff in team sports, when it comes to planning, comes from individual sports, and usually you see these plans like uh, nice laid out preseason, and then you maintain in in season. Is like what the hell are you maintaining? And and also what happens after the peak? It's usually the valley. So, mm-hmm. and if you hit the highest peak, 
you after that you're gonna hit the lowest valley um and i this like you want this in individual sports you want this highest peak on the uh, major competitions and but in a team sports what's the major competition you don't have it you you have a long season and you need to have this uh i think my ex-boss um kenny mcmillan called it uh performance maintenance or something like that so rather than having a performance peak maybe like 100 or 90 percent of whatever personal best you want to stay quite stable uh, across the season so maybe hitting 80 percent or 80 to 90 percent rather than you know to hit the highest and also what, what do you need to hit the highest level you need to underload or taper so because you taper that means you under train to become fresh and then you you know what what happens next like you need to start training so because you come from an underload the next phase is going to be overload for you and then you're gonna you know after the highest peak you're gonna hit the lowest valley and then you're gonna have really really bad performance so rather than trying to hit the peak at the beginning of season with the team sports i'll i would rather have um less distinguished between preseason and in-season training and have this rather quite quasi-stable level of performance throughout the long competition period so i would say that's the uh, main difference when it comes to uh team versus individual sports from a, a peaking perspective yeah and it, it changes everything it's just like you know you get like simon Sinek, right know your why like if i'm an individual why will i have to peak at the max i want to hit the ceiling at the right time if you're a team sport your why is uh to not have to deal with the volleys like you said the peaks and valleys that go with you know, quote unquote peaking or whatever, because then, you know, injury for injury or other reasons. And, and so that, that fundamentally changes the whole process. And I think um, it's just good. It, I imagine each camp can learn from each other a little bit in, in that regards too, in terms of seeing the differences there and what you're trying to achieve. Oh yeah. Physiology is the same. It's like, it's the, we are same humans, you know, independent if you're playing a individual sport and a team sport. So biomechanics and physiology are the, the same, you know, it's, we are all the, quite similar so you know all this stuff the principles of training are quite the same only the context changes as you mentioned no, absolutely uh, so it's got a few minutes left i want to maybe leave it off with this just to summarize a little bit because you kind of mentioned uh just in unpacking a little bit of the bonder chuck system and then what you're trying to do so your thoughts and processes for uh navigating team sports in terms of i, I guess you would say blocks or cycles or I know you've talked about agile periodization a little bit in the past, but what are some generalities in terms of how you go about how far into the future would you train uh, a team or write a team sport athletes program? How, um, how, you know, is there any sort of delayed training effects whatsoever you're looking at, or is it pretty much just flatline um, the whole way really, really coming back to it really quickly? So it's a, <clears throat> it's a good question. And I might, I might need to, uh, elaborate a little bit. So, um, um, with team sports and I would say also other sports, but team sports is in especially is like, um, you're always limited by logistics. Like you're not and by logistics. I mean, you know, competition and you need to have some recovery and you have a lot of athletes and so forth. So at the end of the day, you know, rather than having the optimal training, uh, whatever that is and perfect peaking or perfect timing of the training sessions you want to have a 
what I like to call the robust training. So the robust training is something that works in multiple scenarios rather than being optimal in a one particular limited case. Uh, and and in, in this regard, by you know being robust is making sure you're doing the most important things all the time. And that means speed work, that means some plyos, that means some lifting, at least when it comes to uh, physical preparation side of things. Um, with, with, for example, with Port Adelaide, uh, we had two weeks strength training phases uh, because uh, Aussie rules is really physical sport and you always get some twerk or you get a cork or whatever they call it in Australia, you, you know, in, maybe in a shoulder, in a quad, and you cannot perform certain exercises. So if you have a, like a long-term plan, it doesn't, doesn't really work. You need to, uh, you know, adapt to it. You need to, you know, adapt to a uh, situation, but you still want to hit the, I would say the major objectives that are long-term, if that makes sense. Um, so when it comes to phases or blocks, so we have this in periodization, the idea of the pre-plan phases. So uh, anatomic adaptation, hypertrophy phase, power phase, and whatever. And at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, it's like, why would someone who doesn't need hypertrophy go through a hypertrophy phase? It's like ridiculous. Um, and also I had this scenario when you when you have this laid out plan and maybe someone is missing for like a two weeks, maybe he was on a, on a national training camp or something and he missed this hypertrophy phase and then he need to rejoin on a maximum strength phase and it creates issues. So... Uh, I would say we, we, we still do cycling, but cycling is not cycling in terms of changing the emphasis of the block. It's not biologically based or any 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 fancy periodization stuff. It's mostly based on the uh, available time. So with the team sports, you might have a, a competition or, or a game every week or sometimes even more. And then you have so many time to sneak in developmental workloads. So... Uh, you might have like a day or two in a week to sneak in something that's developmental. And because you have a lot of stuff to cover, you cannot create developmental workload for all the important stuff. So what you can do from, you know, really, really simple is that make sure that you hit all those uh, important things. I would say that Derek Hansen mentioned microdose. So microdosing stuff, doing a little bit, having this small string uh, or is it string there? Uh, yeah, I would say string of of volume for hitting all the major stuff, whatever that is, all the time. That makes it more. That makes the training program more robust. And then you have a little bit of of you know sometimes there's opportunity to overload certain things, and then you you are able to do it. Uh, and also you might have you know time time and energy limit, and you cannot make emphasis on everything all the time. So you might, you, you do need to rotate it. So for example, one week you might emphasize more conditional games. So you might have two conditioning sessions. Uh, next week, or maybe, you know, whatever, maybe you, you focus on, on that stuff for like a few weeks and then you switch. Then you might, okay, I'm gonna emphasize more strength training. Now we have opportunity to increase the strength training, uh, we're still going to do everything all the time, but then you might have uh, opportunity to emphasize strength training. And I would say the the um, the basis of this reasoning is that to push certain quality up, you need saturation. You need a you need a 
you need to saturate that quality. You need to do a, a more of that quality, if that makes sense. So you cannot just do diluted training all the time. You do need to emphasize certain qualities and put more emphasis on it. But just, you know, I, I don't think I don't think there's like an optimal biological rationale behind it. Uh, people call it phase potentiation or whatever. I think, again, from my from my perspective, working in team sports is is the logistics. You just don't have time. And the best you can do, the best thing you can do that's more robust is like microload everything, and then rotate the emphasis. You know, again, this rotation in the emphasis could be based on the individual need. So, for example, one might need extra hypertrophy, so you're gonna do more hypertrophy session, and then. Someone might need more conditioning. You're gonna do more conditioning session. Uh, so it, it's more criteria-based periodization rather than uh, you know having cycles pre-planned in advance. And also, thing is like working as a coach. Sometimes you don't even know what you need to do with a certain athlete. It shows up in training, right? So you start working with someone, and it's like, oh shit, you can't do that. It's like we need to fix that first. And I think that's gonna get the biggest benefit. So. And, and, you know, you need to discover. You, you do discover that stuff and it shows up. So you fix one thing, then other thing shows up. It's like fighting Hydra, you know. You cut one head and, <laughs> you know, three extra heads show up. Uh, but to deal with that, you, you need to make sure, you, you know, on, on, on the one side, you cannot jump bandwagons all the time. Just, oh, this is now you're focusing on this. Now you're focusing on that. I think that's the, that's the bad extreme. Uh, so, so, so solution is to, to balance downside and the upside, I would say, or via negativa or via positiva. So uh, first of all, you need to cover your ass. And to cover your ass, you need to do everything, a little like microdose, all the important stuff all the time. So once you do that, you are sort of covered, okay? And I call it minimum viable training program. So, um, and then once you... You know, do that training program. Things will show up to you, so they're gonna manifest themselves. I'm starting to sound like Jordan Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> so they're gonna manifest themselves. So, you know, you don't you don't know your athletes. You know, they, you don't know how they're gonna respond. You don't know, you know, what's gonna affect their performance. You're gonna see things. They're gonna things gonna show up to yourself as you coach them. So, you know, you have one stable stuff in training. Uh, and then you kind of experiment and see what you can you can do extra. So it means making sure you're covering all the important bases, and then you invest extra time in you know you know whatever you identified as the weak link, if that makes sense. No, it, it makes perfect sense. I I was gonna actually follow back by just kind of giving you a summary back, but you 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 just did it yourself there in the uh, microdosing the things you absolutely need to, and then uh, just enough of the um overload like a two-week micro overload of, of what what you need to overload so kind of like kind of like west side but not <laughs> but just for team sports in context or whatnot like it kinda... i mean uh, it could be for example let's say you're coaching a powerlifter and and you know you you, you don't know him so you started coaching him what, what you gonna do so are you gonna experiment with with stuff no you're gonna make sure that you know he bench press he squat he deadlift so, you know, you are making sure he does that. Okay. Then you proceed. You you notice that he struggled with the lockout and then in a bench press. Then you might say, okay, we're going to do, we're going to, like, you're not going to ditch the squat and deadlift, right? So you're going to continue doing that. Maybe he is good at that. But then you're going to say, okay, maybe the, the weak link or the rate limiter 
And I think that everything in, 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 everything in training revolves around finding and removing the rate limiters. And finding them is not easy. It's like, you know, catch them if you can, Pokemon stuff. So it's not easy. You, you need to identify the weak links. And it's not easy. Like, it's really, really hard. So, and they're going to manifest to your, you know, you, you just need to watch. So you might start working with this power lifter and then you see he's struggling with the lockout. So you might say, okay, we're going to continue doing a bench press. We're going to continue doing the squat and we're going to continue doing the deadlift. So those, those are your, all the major qualities you need to continue doing, right? But then you might say, okay, we might focus on the lockout strength because I think that's your weak link and you can get the biggest increase in, you know, Wilk score, whatever, by focusing on the lockout. Maybe you can get maybe extra 2.5 kilos or 5 kilos on a, on a bench press. So then you might have, okay, uh, we're going to microdose, or not really microdose, we're going to continue doing all the important stuff, but then we're going to experiment with doing maybe more lockout stuff. And then you're going to try to do that for like a few weeks. And, you know, maybe you're going to get effects, maybe you're not going to get effects. So, but then you might see, okay, then some, you know, you, you fix it. Then the other things, so once you fix a certain rate limiter, the other rate limiter is going to show up. It's not that it's never static. It's always dynamic. So then something else shows up. Maybe, you know, maybe in the process he screws up his, you know, low back. Then you need to, okay, what did we do wrong? Maybe, you know, you did too much deadlift. Then, you know, maybe we should do, you know, maybe you should focus on higher reps deadlift rather than, you know, low reps deadlift. And it's, it's a continuous ongoing process and it's really unpredictable and uncertain. And I would say that I learned more about coaching from other books than coaching books and like reading Nassim Taleb or Gergi Gerenzer or all this stuff is like, how do you make decisions in uncertain world? And, you know, Nassim Taleb have, has this, um, uh, barbell strategy where, you know, most of the stuff is protecting from the negative events and then investing in the upside. So that will be, you know, avoiding the downside will be doing bench press, squat, and deadlift all the time. And then you try to invest in the upside. You know, try to get the biggest return by investing in a certain, you know, risky domain. And the I would say the 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 logic is quite sim is quite similar in investing. So imagine you have a certain amount of money you want to invest. And let's say you have certain, you know, maybe five stocks uh, you want to invest in. And now the question is like, how should I invest in those? stocks to get the highest return of, of money. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of research and I think that's called um, maximization theory and portfolio theory, you know, like making certain distribution of, you know, your assets, your money. Uh, but for that, you know, you need a shitload of data, maybe 30 years of data and it's quite tricky. So I would say the easiest investing strategy is, is, is really simple heuristical one over N. It's like e invest equally. Uh, but in training doesn't mean like investing equally doesn't mean investing um, same time on all the activities. Just is, is I would say the, the take home message is just making sure you are investing something in everything that's important. So once you do that, you're kind of safer to experiment. And, you know, it, it's never predictable, so you, we just need to embrace the embrace the chaos, pretty much. Oh yeah, it's, that's right on. I feel like, uh, yeah, I, I'm in the same boat with you in terms of, I I go through different phases of life, but I, right now I'm definitely in one where I I'm learning more 
in the coaching field from non-coaching books. And it's always, those are some of the best lessons. So I appreciate that. Um, but Hey, I think our, I think our time is, is up for today. I actually apologize. I, I, um, if I gave you all these questions and you wrote a few notes on them that we didn't get to, but perhaps we can, uh, revisit them on another day. And, uh, but thank you so much for your time. I learned a lot talking to you. Milan is great to finally, uh, I've been kind of face to face Skype at least, but it was great to sit down and chat. So I really appreciate it, man. All right, that's all for today's episode. Thanks for tuning in with us today. Appreciate having you here. As always, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They have a great blog as well, bringing you the leading edge in sports science and tech. Uh, also, if you have the time and you're not driving and you have access to your phone and you have just two minutes right now, I would be so thrilled if you would review or rate this podcast. If you like what we're doing, it's one of the best ways you can help us in sharing uh, the knowledge that these guests are bringing with coaches who you will find it helpful. So it's just been a blessing to do this all so far, and it's been a blessing to get all the great um, positive comments and feedback. So if you can, leave us a rating review on iTunes Stitcher if you just have two minutes right now. Totally appreciate it. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.